If you were making a list of the all-time greatest baseball movies, no doubt it would include Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, Major League, The Sandlot, Pride of the Yankees, Eight Men Out, and of course, no such list would be complete without the redemptive story of Roy Hobbs and the 1939 New York Knights. The Natural, starring Robert Redford, was filmed in 1983 at Buffalo's War Memorial Stadium, which at the time was home of the minor league Buffalo Bisons. Pete Weber, who did the play-by-play for the Bisons, was there at the ballpark throughout the filming. And he's my guest on this episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area is going to feel almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a twilight doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. Go pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shaper or two throughout the evening. Almost 70 episodes into this podcast, and this is the first time I've interviewed someone who currently does play-by-play for an NHL team. Legendary sportscaster Pete Weber has been the voice of the Nashville Predators since their first season in 1998. But prior to that, between 1983 and 1995, Weber called over 1,900 games for the Buffalo Bisons. There's a shot deep to left center field, going, going, and gone. Russ Borman touches one off. Joe Deesa scores in front of him, and the Bisons are out in front 10-1. The Bisons are currently the AAA affiliate of the Blue Jays. Previously, they were affiliated with the Mets, Indians, White Sox, and Pirates. Pete Weber, thanks for taking time today. Glad to do it. Baseball is always high on my priority list. Let's start with this. When and where did you see your first Major League Baseball game? Can you take me back to that day and where it was and... Uh, what were some yeah. of the sights and sounds? Stan Musial's last game at Wrigley Field in Chicago in 1963. This is the WGN Chicago Cubs Baseball Network. Looks like we're going to have a full house this afternoon. I'm Jack Brickhouse. Stay with us. It's going to be a great day in Chicago. My father tried and failed to get tickets for the last game, which would have been September 29th at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. Uh, but he was able to get them in Chicago. And uh, I guess that's part of his having been a lifelong poor guy, Cubs fan. And uh, that's where I saw Stan Musial walk down the back way to the dugout and onto the field. And uh, he was my childhood hero. And that was an absolutely fantastic experience for me. I was I was 12 at the time. What are your memories of Sportsman's Park in St. Louis? Most vivid memory of there. I was there the last game they ever played, uh, which was Mother's Day 1966. What are your reactions to this old landmark being torn down? Well, I think I'll be rather sad, but the new stadium is beautiful, and I hope to attend many games there, too. As we were walking out of the ballpark, it was the Giants and the Cardinals for a weekend series. My mother and my aunt took my cousin and me to the game. And we had a, just a fantastic experience. Matter of fact, I even got a foul ball in the upper deck down the right field side off the bat of uh, Willie Mays. Uh, Mays hit the last home run in the stadium. But I'll never forget about Willie Mays was much more a defensive play. It was Charlie Smith, who was third baseman for the Cardinals and had been with the New York Mets, 
hit a line shot just above the 424 marker on straightaway center. And Willie Mays fielded that much like he had against Vic Wirtz in the polo grounds, turned around and fired a strike in, and Charlie was almost nailed, rounding first base. So uh, <laughs> that was one of the things. And then as we're walking out of the ballpark, we get the public address announcement. The Cardinals would like to announce the acquisition of Orlando Cepeda from the San Francisco Giants in exchange for pitcher Ray Sadecki. And that was great for the rest of that year and the next season, of course. Uh, Cepeda was the MVP of the National League. Fantastic, fantastic experience and memory. You still have the Willie Mays um, foul ball? You kidding me? I'm a kid. <laughs> that, got, that's, that got scuffed up on a street someplace playing ball out in front of the house. You mentioned that one of your first autographs was from our very first guest on the Lost Ballparks podcast, Carl Erskine, right? Yes. He was a good friend of the director of the YMCA in my hometown in Galesburg, Illinois. And Carl was there. And it just the timing was rather unique in that it was just the week after the 63 World Series when Sandy Koufax broke Erskine's single-game World Series strikeout record. Then he fires another flaming fastball. Bright swings and misses for strikeout number 15. He signed it, and uh, I'll never forget how warm and friendly the man was. And there were a number of us standing in line to get the autograph. Yeah, he's such a good guy. And even though he was the very first podcast episode we ever did, uh, to this day, he remains one of my all-time favorite episodes. So, Pete, you, for 13 years, were the play-by-play voice of the minor league Buffalo Bisons. Radio 930 WBEN. Takes you out to the ballgame. When you officially joined the team in 1983, the Bisons played their home games at War Memorial Stadium. A beautiful evening here at War Memorial Stadium. If you're in the neighborhood, drop on by. It opened in 1937 and was demolished in the late 80s. Uh, Two companies, as I understand it, or as I recall, went bankrupt in that process of tearing it down. It was a World uh, Works Progress Administration project back in the 30s and 40s. And their orders in those days was just keep pouring concrete until the hole is filled. Well, that made it more than a little bit difficult to take that down. The ballpark was built on the site of a, the main Buffalo Reservoir at the time. So I, th- I think it really lived up to its nickname of the old rock pile for, for quite some time. I want to take a second and talk about that old, rickety, and wonderful press box, as Mike Harrington, the great writer for the Buffalo News, described it. You would arrive at the ballpark and make your ascent to that press box, and each time you did, it was an adventure. It was, as I recall, 69 very uneven risers to get up to the catwalk just to get into it. And uh, let's just say it was a gravity uh, restroom facility, so you had so many flushes per game, and that was it. Uh, <laughs> and the, But the angle, the angle of vision for a broadcaster looking down on home plate was unparalleled. I mean, you were yeah, you were right on top of it. I guess the closest major league parallel would have been old Tiger Stadium, where at least at Tiger Stadium, they didn't have the protection in front of you in case a foul ball came scorching back. But uh, we had that with the uh, with the chain link fence essentially in front of us to protect us. And the closest to that at that point in time in the American Association, the that was the league that the Bisons played in, would have been the ballpark in Louisville. That was uh, right on top of home plate as well, suspended from the roof back of home plate. And I really can't complain about my vantage points there. 
What did you call it when you would broadcast? It was high atop? The Dodge Street side of War Memorial Stadium, yes. But that was so much fun doing games in there. So much fun further that first summer when they decided that Robert Redford and company and TriStar Productions were going to film a movie called The Natural in there and employed many of my friends as extras. Barry Levinson, who directed the movie, was looking for a ballpark that felt like the 1930s. And if you pay close attention to the film, that season for the fictional New York Knights was 1939. The film's producers had been searching high and low for the right ballpark. Production designer Mel Bourne even went to Louisville to Cardinal Stadium, where the Redbirds played at the time. While he's there in Louisville, he runs into a man who at one time was Satchel Paige's catcher and who then was the trainer for the Louisville Redbirds, who told him, look, the stadium you need to go see is in Buffalo. Yes, absolutely. And the thing in Louisville at that time, it wouldn't have been good for a 1930s era movie because they were all astroturfed by that time. So they were looking around. And as a matter of fact, I remember Barry Levinson saying he thought that War Memorial Stadium had already been demolished and didn't think it was a candidate for use of the movie. But in many ways, much, much like the polo grounds were, they just didn't put home plate in one corner so that he had two short foul lines. But it was it was a great ballpark. What a sense of community we had in there. And what really sold them on War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo was PR director Mike, Mike Balani. Yes. And uh, he invites them to Buffalo, picks them up at the airport in a limousine, drives them right onto the field at War Memorial Stadium, right up to home plate. And they asked him if he could turn on the lights. So turned on the lights. But the problem was... In those days, you could not turn them off without going up on the standards themselves to throw the switch. So that resulted in a very uh, icy experience that was uh, difficult for them to get up there on those light standards and throw them off. But as we all know, they were blown out by Roy Hobbs' home run. I'm sure it was exciting to have a film shot in your home ballpark. On the other hand, it would have presented some challenges, some things that you and the team would have to contend with in terms of scheduling and adjustments to the ballpark. Oh, yeah. Because of uh, weather delays and postponements, we had to play three consecutive nine o'clock start doubleheaders because they were shooting, you know, films that essentially were baseball was almost all day ball there with the exception of a few, very few night games. And so we had some very late departures from the ballpark. How many scenes did you actually get to watch? Because I'm sure, um, you know, from your press box or wherever in the ballpark, you could you camp out and watch some of the stuff as they film? Yes, we could. Yes, we could. And but the most the climactic scene uh, was finally filmed on a very chilly, I'm going to say around four or five o'clock in the Saturday morning. And that ballpark was in a neighborhood and they were setting off fireworks to accommodate all those special effects on the Hobbs home run. So I was watching that while throwing down Dunkin Donuts and coffee. Uh, just to try to get through it without freezing myself. Uh, and that, I, I guess, is all part of being a Buffalo sports fan. There are several scenes in the movie that show the judge, the villainous owner of the New York Knights, peering mm-hmm. through his office window above the outfield stands. Were those offices actually used outside of the film? What were those? That was uh, constructed in the football press box. Okay. Uh, the, the Buffalo Bills, uh, both the AAFC and the AFL, had played their games there. And so they just utilized that structure for that. And uh, yes, the evil judge 
who we all recalled as well from from uh, Hill Street Blues, being the man calling the squad meetings in the mornings. But that was uh, what a ballpark to use. So when the film comes out in 1984 and you've got a fin- finally a chance to watch it, there must have been so many eye-popping moments of recognition for you as someone who was intimately familiar with War Memorial Stadium and then who watched so many of the scenes being filmed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I got it. And two, the uh, clubhouse scenes that they filmed were across the street in the armory, across from the ballpark. So they did everything they could to keep things quite local. Uh, the uh, candy shop where... Uh, oh, Parkside, yeah. Yeah, Parkside. That's That was still there. That was just built up to make it look like the L was running outside it. And people go to Parkside uh, Candy to this day going in there. And and I don't know if they're even thinking about the movie whatsoever. Buffalo Central Terminal was used to make uh, to appear like Grand Central Station. And yes, um, the Ellicott Square building, I think, was the hotel. Is that right? That's that was the hotel. And that is, matter of fact, located catacorner to the current ballpark, uh, Salem Field uh, on the corner of Washington and Swan Streets. And boy, that really worked out well, particularly the elevator scenes. I just watched it again um, a couple nights ago, and it, it's as good as ever. It's just it's one of the all time great baseball movies. And for those who haven't seen it, or maybe you haven't seen it in a while, uh, it, it's worth pulling back out and watching again. When I go across the satellite directory at night and I see it, I automatically go to it. In 1987, the Buffalo Bisons played their final game at War Memorial Stadium. It seems, it seems like, like only, only yesterday. yesterday. Where 50, Where 50 years have gone, gone only, father only Father Time, time knows, and he, and he won't tell. You were there that day. What do you remember? Well, our, the emotions were incredible. The fans packed the stands. And when the guys came out to get the, pick up the bases and start cleaning up the field, and they got booed. Uh, they, they, they didn't like the idea of closing down the old lady. Boy, and we had a team banquet that night. We, were, we still had a road trip to go on to Indianapolis, and we had a team banquet that night, and there were a lot of tears shed there. And as you're making your treacherous walk back down from the press <laughs> box that night. We bid you all a very fond adieu for the last time from high atop the Dodge Street side. I mean, I would think you have a lot of emotion going through you, too, right? This is the last time. Oh, I'm- yeah. And some of those memories come rolling back to me as well. When I watch The Natural, I keep thinking, that's my ballpark. There are some great old ballparks that the Bisons traveled to in the 80s as part of the American Association, including Bush Stadium in Indianapolis, which opened in 1931. In addition to the Indians, several Negro League teams played there as well. What are your memories of uh, Bush Stadium in Indianapolis? Well, I remember that for Howard Kelman, who is still the announcer there, and he started in 1974. They cut out the chain link in front of his window down to the field, but not for the visitors. And I remember Steve Carroll, then the voice of the Iowa Cubs, stuck out his uh, effects microphone, for lack of a better term right now. And it turned out that the uh, chain link fence was not grounded. And so it fried his gear. It traveled right back up his microphone into his mixer board and just totally fried it. So he was left without any ability to carry the game other than to use a cell phone, or not a cell phone, but a regular landline phone to broadcast. But Bush Stadium, wonderful place. Unless you were a catcher going to the backstop to chase down a pass ball or a wild pitch because the slope was so incredible. You looked like Freddie Patek trying to throw uphill uh, to whoever was coming in. He hoped the pitcher to cover home plate. 
but it was uh, a ballpark that had, uh, I mean, we're not politically correct anymore, right? We weren't back back then. They had their version of Chief Nakahoma, like the Atlanta Braves had, in a teepee in center field behind the low restraining fence they had in front of the walls there. Uh, the manually operated scoreboard in left field, that was absolutely lovely, and it was kept up to date. They were doing walkie-talkies out to the guys on the scoreboard to put the numbers up, down, or whatever it had to do. As it's being demolished, they keep the grandstand and actually yes. build apartments around the field. Can you imagine how great it would have been had they done that at Tiger Stadium or the Polo oh. Grounds or Ebbets Field, for instance? And I was just at Tiger Stadium's site a few weeks ago, and uh, we drove around to see what they have done. It, it was a, It's a good start toward doing something like that, but obviously now it's it's too late to actually do that. But yeah, Ebbets Field Apartments, I've gone there, sort of an homage to that great ballpark. Uh, yeah, but if they had kept the facade, can you imagine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What they did at Bush Stadium, anybody who was listening and driving any place in the Midwest, go down West 16th Street in Indianapolis and you will find what is remaining now of Bush Stadium. So much history there, too, going back to 1931. So the old the old Sec Taylor Stadium, the home of the Iowa Cubs, <laughs> had a uh, had a siren that would go off when the Iowa Cubs would hit a home run. Is that right? Yes right next to my booth. So I was getting so infuriated, and I guess I should have been more infuriated at the Bison pitchers who were giving up the gopher balls. But I crawled hands and knees outside my booth and unplugged the siren. <laughs> I unplugged it one night. And next thing I know, they hit a home run and the guy is next door, frantically, feverishly pushing the button to send the siren off and it won't go. Next thing I know, there is an officer of the law coming up to uh, fake arrest me for uh, damage to property. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, so Mile High Stadium in Denver, home to the Zephyrs. What do you remember about uh, Mile High as it was configured for baseball back in the 80s? Well, we had a playoff game there in 1991 where the Bisons were being no hit going into the ninth inning and trailing 9 nothing. 32 minutes later, the top of the ninth is over. And what should have been, I still believe, the tying run was called out at home plate. Uh, not that I recall and hold any grudges, but the home plate umpire was Scott Potter. A hot shot! Fair ball to the third base side! The tying run will score! Greg Edge is picking him up and laying him down! Going into second is Tubbs! The throw is done! Oh, they caught him out! They caught him out! you got to be kidding me! And uh, that was one of the most incredible things I think I had ever seen. Uh, they ultimately went through three pitchers in the ninth inning before closing that one out. And uh, Buffalo had a two games to none lead in that series. That would have tied it uh, up at two. But in game five, the next day, it went the way of the uh, Denver Zephyrs. In the 80s, Mile High was the only professional level stadium with an all grass infield with sliding pits at each base. How did that look? It looked fine. It looked yeah. absolutely fine. Uh, that was a great field. I think I called my only inside-the-park grand slam there. That was just a sinking line drive to left center field that somehow got away from Daryl Boston, a very adept uh, outfielder, and rolled all the way back to the wall and sort of curled around the warning track for a bit. I remember one time when we got there, it was the 1987 season, and to open the year, the headline on the Rocky Mountain News, yeah, here it is, opening day in baseball, and the headline on the Rocky Mountain News on the front page was, Broncos get new locker room. And that uh, took care of what had been a pretty good baseball clubhouse in right field. 
You made many trips to Nashville for Bison's Nashville Sounds games. The Sounds played at Herschel Greer Stadium. We're back at Herschel Greer Stadium. Pete Weber along with Dan Lanetta and Cliff Speck getting set to work to the batting order for the Nashville Sounds the first time tonight. What stands out to you about that ballpark? Number one, the heat. <laughs> that was, here's a guy who grew up in the north and, and coming down south in the middle of the summer. And uh, I think that Nashville and Cincinnati and, and St. Louis really share a lot in terms of humidity. Only a few clouds in the sky here tonight. I couldn't have imagined back in those days that I ended up taking up residency in Nashville, but albeit to do a winter sport. But uh, Greer Stadium was uh, a place where characters, I mean, maybe more characters than I had seen in any ballpark uh, grew up. There was a guy there named Black Cat Riley, who had become, when the Yankees were the parent club of the Nashville Sounds in the double-A days, had become very close to George Steinbrenner. He could call George Steinbrenner, and they would put him right through. Uh, and there was the glove doctor who would come down and mend the players' gloves. Uh, and I have breakfast with the man who founded the Sounds uh, every Monday, Larry Schmidt. And he uh, grew quite the crowd there, I got to tell you. And it, he was... The man who was did so well with his minor league teams, I think he owned as many as five or six at one point, that he became the marketing director for the Texas Rangers. I remember reading that when Herschel Greer opened in 1978, that it, that it barely opened. The electricity right. was, was turned on, I think, five minutes before the gates even opened. And the seats, which came from Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, home of the yes. Braves, were installed the week it opened. So it was, there was like this mad rush to get things. Even the sod kind of went in the last The sod night. was rolling up, yes. Yeah. Was the scoreboard, was that the, the ballpark with the guitar-shaped scoreboard? Yes. And that was installed, I believe, at first in 1993. So, but it was, and it was, Larry Schmidt had drawn that on a napkin. And then uh, they, they constructed it. And now that scoreboard, they moved it maybe five blocks away to the uh, home of uh, an entertainment company. And that stands out in front there now. And it's a brand new guitar shaped scoreboard with video, et cetera, at the new ballpark, First Horizon. So as you look back through uh, your Bison's career, which spans more than I think 1900 games that you called? Yes, sir. So as you think back to all the ballparks that you went, save War Memorial Stadium, which obviously has a lot of personal affection for you, not the least of which is that's where I think you met your wife. Is that right? That's where we courted. I actually met her at the old auditorium in Buffalo. Okay, yeah. So out of all those ballparks, which one do you have the fondest memories of enjoyed broadcasting from? Aside from War Memorial Stadium, I'd have to say uh, it was probably Cardinal Stadium in Louisville because it was so similar. But uh, the, dissimilar with the AstroTurf and all of that, we used to say that War Memorial had had Astro dirt. It was so hard. You'd get the, the big bounces there. And there was a lip behind second base that made it, uh, let's just say, very interesting for the various second basemen. The one who handled, I think, the best was Brian Little, who had quite a bit of major league time himself. I remember as a kid, we lived in Ohio. We would drive to Florida on vacation. And there were several stadiums, ballparks that we would drive past on the freeway on the way down. One of them was Cardinal Stadium in Louisville. Yeah. And I always thought about, man, I wonder who's playing there. The other was Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati and then Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta. And again, these big things that are just off the freeway to a five, six, seven-year-old kid in, you know, <laughs> a big green station wagon plowing through the freeway. It's just, it's otherworldly, you know? I hope that station wagon was a Woody. Of course. <laughs> 
Pete, thanks so much for the time and uh, reflecting back at these old ballparks. Uh, it makes me want to go watch The Natural again. And honestly, I wish I could go back in time and just walk with you through War Memorial Stadium. And this is the next best thing. Well, thank you so very much. I appreciate the chance to share some of these stories. Yes, thank you for the invitation. All right. Have a great day. You too. Pete Weber is a member of the Buffalo Baseball Hall of Fame, and he does an outstanding job calling games for the Nashville Predators. There are a couple folks I'd like to thank for making this interview possible. Glenn Busek and also Mike Harrington. If it's been a while since you've seen The Natural, it's definitely worth watching again. And now I know that during the climactic scene where Roy Hobbs, who can barely walk to the plate, hits a home run into the lights at War Memorial Stadium, that somewhere behind those cameras is Pete Weber munching on a Dunkin' Donut with his hands firmly wrapped around a hot cup of coffee. By the way, you'll recall that a few years later, Life imitated art when Kirk Gibson, who also could barely walk to the plate, hit one of the most memorable home runs in baseball history to win game one of the 1988 World Series. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Bob Costas was on Lost Ballparks in season three. And remembering that moment, he recalled, so now we're walking out of the park. And I said to David Neal, who was the pregame producer, you know, that reminded me of Robert Redford's last at bat as Roy Hobbs in The Natural. And David took it from there and he went back to NBC and Burbank and he took the film of The Natural. And it was much harder then to edit than it is now where you could do everything very quickly digitally. So he stays up all night and he intercuts Redford's last at bat with Gibson's. And it was eerie the way they mirrored each other. I mean, Gibson wasn't bleeding through his uniform like Redford, but he was definitely hobbling around. He was definitely wounded. Even the way Lasorda jumped up in excitement when the home run was hit. Wilford Brimley, as the manager of the New York Knights, jumps up and they almost look the same. Same kind of body type, barely got an inch or two off the ground. And so with Randy Newman's score from the natural playing beneath it, the way we came on the air, and again, my contribution was minimal. All I said was, Echoes of a miracle. Echoes of a miracle. And then the thing played out with all that great Randy Newman music as the bed. And as we had a slow motion shot of Gibson approaching home plate, being embraced by his teammates who were waiting for them, it just said in graphic form, in script, welcome to the World Series. Game two, next. Now, I, I get response just saying that now. Yeah. All these years later. And people, it doesn't happen nearly as often now. It used to happen a lot, but it could still could happen a few times a year where you get in a cab or somebody goes up to you in a restaurant and they mention that very thing. So, and, and Gibson, Gibson has seen it many times, the way that the pregame show celebrated what he had done the night before. And it's meaningful to him. So, you know, to have been a small part of something that's a part of baseball history is is a cool thing. And it's, it's my good luck to have been there. War Memorial Stadium was demolished in the late 80s and replaced with a high school athletic field. All is gone except for the original entrance, which still stands today. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by John McBride, Maddie Savlakis, Ryan Beard, Mike Dunn, Curtis Litzenberger, Xavier Guerra, Alex Kemp, John Carter, Kyle Schmidt, and Mike Lipinski. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back on the first Wednesday of next month with another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.